Hello and welcome to Session 6 of the 4th WSC, a comprehensive update on advances in timely pathogen and sepsis detection. We have an amazing array of experts on the topic, and the session is moderated by Sheikh Tidian Dianye from the Institut Pasteur in Senegal. Before we get into it, a quick word from our sponsor, Biomeriu. The earlier and faster that we can diagnose sepsis, this means that treatment and supportive care can be started earlier and improve the patient outcomes and really start to save lives. Learn about the critical role of diagnostics by visiting BioMariu's Medical Education Hub. Watch webinars and tutorials, access online courses, and download educational booklets developed in collaboration with renowned experts. Go to BioMariu.com to begin exploring. Again, thanks to BioMariu for supporting the Congress and this session. Sheikh, over to you. Hello, everyone. My name is Sheikh Tijan Jang. I thank our worldwide audience for joining this 4th World Sepsis Congress. This session is sponsored by Biomarier and is about the advances in timely pathogens and sepsis detection. It will cover six talks, which are a need for early diagnosis, taking the patient experience into consideration, delivered by Dr. Campbell, Amy Campbell. Health inequities as a barrier to the timely diagnosis of sepsis, delivered by Dr. Eliza Estan Soro. The current research on sepsis biomarkers and early diagnosis, delivered by Francois, Dr. Francois Ventura. Is sequencing useful to detect sepsis, a tool to, of metagenomics and transcriptomics for timely infection diagnosis, delivered by Dr. Miriam Huntley. Sepsis diagnosis, a paradigm shift toward biosensing, delivered by Dr. Santo Liwong. And finally, an interpretable machine learning model for accurate prediction of sepsis in the ICU, delivered by Dr. Rashi Kamaleswara. Our first speaker will be Dr. Amy Campbell. She will discuss the need for early diagnosis and the importance of taking the patient's experience into consideration. Dr. Campbell is an exemplary seasoned nurse, educator, leader, and lifelong learner with over 22 years of nursing experience. As a nurse educator at Pitt Community College, Dr. Campbell was recognized for teaching excellence and was a finalist for North Carolina Community College teachers. Now, as an associate clinical professor at East Carolina University College of Nursing, Dr. Campbell teaches quality, safety, health policy, and healthcare finance courses to upper-level master students and Montrose BSN honor students. As a quality nurse specialist at ECU Health, she obtained her Six Sigma black belt and became a certified professional of healthcare, quality to drive and lead safe quality care for patients and families. She is an expert in sepsis and venous thromboembolism coordinating and transforming sepsis care across the ECU health system. In 2021, Dr. Campbell's dedication to nursing was formally recognized when she was named one of the North Carolina Grade 100, demonstrating her ongoing commitment to excellence and promoting a positive image of nursing. She will be inducted into ECU Hall of Fame in March 2022. Dr. Campbell, the floor is yours. All right. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. And I am just so honored to be here and to be with the speakers that are here. 
So today I'm going to be discussing a need for early diagnosis, taking the patient experience into consideration. I am a quality nurse specialist. I do have 24 years experience and a big part of my role is coordinating the sepsis care and collaboration at nine different hospitals within Eastern North Carolina. So let me tell you a little bit about ECU Health. We are located in the Southeast United States. This Southern accent is real. Uh, we are a nine hospital bed system. We have an academic medical center, which has almost a thousand beds and we're a trauma one hospital. So I want to begin our journey and our talk today just with a patient story and I titled it Pink Nail Polish, which you don't always think about with sepsis, but I bet you will after the story. About five years ago, I was asked to go with a surveyor from Joint Commission to observe an amputation in the OR. And when I was reviewing the chart, I realized the patient was very young and she was less than 20 years old, had two children at home, and she was getting ready to have both of her feet amputated. She was an IV drug user. She had used dirty needles and had multiple accounts of cellulitis and infection in her toes and feet and caused great pain and necrosis. I remember talking to her and I noticed her toes and they were hot pink. She had hot pink nail polish on, which is also one of my favorite colors. And I immediately felt like I failed her. Even though I had not met her, this was my first time interacting with her. I just wondered what would have happened if she hadn't had multiple admissions? What if she hadn't had septic shock? What if we had intervened earlier? What if we had gotten her the resources to help her to fight her demons of addictions? My heart was just broken that day because I realized she'll never put her toes in the sand. She won't dance at her kid's wedding. And from that moment on, I just became very passionate about sepsis, about educating about sepsis, understanding the whole picture of sepsis, that we all can get sepsis, unfortunately, and what the risk factors are. So when we talk about the risk factors for sepsis, I wish everyone that came in worldwide held up a sign and said, I am septic, treat me now but we don't present that way. Our risk factors, of course, are elderly, 65 or older, our chronic conditions, that's our diabetes, our lung disease, our cancer, our kidney disease. Those that have survived sepsis, we know that post-sepsis syndrome can happen in 30 to 40% of our survivors. Anyone that has had a trauma, they can have post-operative sepsis, which is also a patient safety indicator, device-related, where you have that cause of bacteria to enter, a pressure in injury, we have our pressure ulcers, and any autoimmune. These are all risk factors that put us on that highway for sepsis. So what happened with this young lady? When I think about her, this is someone who exposed himself to a bacteria and her situation, her vector was the dirty needle. The common bacteria with this, when we see this with the IV drug user, is going to be group A streptococcal, but it could be any bacteria. It led to cellulitis, which led her to developing sepsis. When she was admitted, one of her admissions, she had a high fever, she had a high white count. That lets us know right there she's in her SIRS, the systemic inflammatory response um, 
this when we have that happen within our system, it could happen to any of us. We can all have the same bacteria. It's how our body responds. The cytokines, those are our drama queens of the immune, uh, the immune system. When it releases, it causes this response that makes the vessels clot and leak at the same time. And because of that, our tissues are not well perfused. And this is why we can lead into septic shock, which we know has the high mortality with it, with it that low blood pressure. And also with that, we know that one out of three of our patients with sepsis can die. And the only way to do this is to prevent it. We also know their long-term effects. PTSD, chronic pain, organ dysfunction, and amputations, which is what happened to this young lady. And that 10% of all of our amputations are related to sepsis. So how can we prevent this? And this is where I want our lens, although we're all around the world today, just thinking globally about assessing when we're doing our discharge instructions, and we've done such a good job with them in the hospital, and we've hopefully prevented any harm or them to have any infection, is what is their current health condition like? What are they battling? Do they have food insecurity? Are there financial insecurity? What are their living conditions? Do they have clean water? Can they wash their hands? We talk so much about infection prevention and washing your hands and taking really good care of your wounds. But when they go home, do they have access to that? And do they have the resources? And as providers, do we build the rapport there where people will share those things with us so we connect them to the resources? We know that when people have sepsis, they can have readmissions. And those readmissions can lead to that post-sepsis syndrome and to mortality. So a lot of what I do with my teaching and my rounding is trying to be proactive to think when they go home, how are they going to take care of themselves and what, what risk factors do they have? What lifestyle risk factors do they have? Are they a smoker? Do they have a drug habit? Are they an IV drug user? Are they battling obesity? And how does all that play into us preventing sepsis? How do we stop sepsis before they even get into the hospital? And do they know what sepsis is? Do they know how to use the S word and know the signs and symptoms of infection? When someone goes home with a wound or they have a wound in the hospital, they can be very complicated. They can be hard to treat. And when they go home, are they able, do they have the dressing supplies and everything they need so they can take really good care of that wound and hopefully prevent infection? So the last story I want to share with one with you and I want to end with that hopefully will really inspire you as we think about early diagnosis and what we need to do is a story of slip on shoes. And this is someone, I do post-sepsis syndrome research. There's not a whole lot of research out there on it. And I'm kind of fascinated by the different things that happen when someone has post-sepsis syndrome. As I mentioned earlier, it causes PTSD, cognitive delays. And then we also know they can have more bouts of infection. This young man that I interviewed was an executive of a company he had had a small fall that had led to multiple battles of sepsis. And with that, he'd had multiple readmissions. And one day he'd gone back to work and he was walking down the hallway and he realized he didn't remember how to get back to his office. And slowly he started having problems with his short and his long-term memory. 
When he went to his physician, he said, this doesn't have anything to do with sepsis. He said, I started feeling like I was crazy, Amy, and no one would listen to me. The only thing I could tell him is I had survived sepsis and been hospitalized multiple times. And he told me with tears in his eyes, he said, Amy, I wear slip-on shoes. Do you know why I wear slip-on shoes? It's because there are days I wake up and I can't remember how to tie them. He said, I will go out to eat and go to the restroom. And when I come back, I can't remember who I was sitting with or where I was. He said, I cannot tell you the terror and how scary this is for me. So as I close, the big things I want to take away with this early diagnosis is if we can recognize those symptoms early, if we can intervene early, get the antibiotics started early, then we can really change the trajectory of people's lives. So thank you very much. And here is my email. I would love to connect with you, come visit with you, see your septic patients, um, and take any questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Campbell, for this brilliant presentation. Um, Dr. Campbell, so thank you for again for this presentation. Um, I really like the way you emphasize the, uh, the need for early diagnosis for, for sepsis. So you mentioned that we need to intervene very early. Um, with antibiotics and also uh, perhaps diagnostics. And um, my question was about, based on your experience, um, what gap should we feel for us to intervene very early in sepsis diagnostics? Do we think that the diagnostics um, tool we have are fit for purpose? I feel like, and I'm, I'm going to get into some people's presentations here, but I feel like yeah. we need to be using biomarkers more. Yes. We often use, look at lactic acid, I know in the United States, and that can be, lactic tells us that the tissues are not being perfused, but that can be a late sign. That lets us already know we're having organ damage. We need to be thinking beyond that and what biomarkers can we use so we can intervene early. I think you can also look at CO2 levels. Um, if you're not doing biomarkers, you can look to see if the person is um, hypercapnic. You can look at procalcitonin. But I really think we need to be looking at biomarkers more so we can intervene early. That would be the gap for me in early diagnosis. And I also think screening. I think in, I know in, um, where I am, we have a lot of long-term care facilities screening these elderly patients and recognizing their baseline where hopefully we can keep them out of the hospital and intervene early. When they come to us and they're 65 or older and they have a UTI, we have a high mortality rate with that. So that would be one of the gaps I would want to tackle. Great, great. Thank you very much. You also uh, said that we need to answer that the patient, once they return home, can take care of themselves. What is the way forward to keep the communication between the patients being at home and also the 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 healthcare workers? Yeah. I would hope they would have a primary care physician. They would have someone to stay. But I think this is something we need to establish at discharge is when you go home and you get in trouble at three in the morning, what are you going to do? Because going to the ED is the emergency department is not always the best option, especially if their emergency department is 30 or 45 minutes away. I try to teach people the minute you are not feeling good, call your primary care physician. If you don't have a primary care physician, 
what are our options in your area? Do you have any free clinics? Do you have a nurse? Do you have home health? What are your options? And just letting people know early, hey, I've got a fever. My wound does not look right. Don't wait. We often wait because we don't want to look, we don't want to bother people. Bother me. You know, let me know something is not right. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much for, uh, for, your, for your replies. Thank you, Dr. Campbell, again for your presentation. Thank you. Uh, now, thank you very much. Now we'll move to our next, next speaker. The next speaker is Professor Eliza Estancero. She will discuss health inequities as a barrier to the timely diagnosis of sepsis. Professor Estan Soro has been director of the intensive care unit of the hospital Enter Zona San Martin de la Plata, the largest hospital of the province of Buenos Aires in Argentina. Since the beginning of the pandemic, she has acted in the group of experts in COVID-19 of the Provincial Ministry of Health in the Buenos Aires, she has worked extensively in clinical epidemiology and outcome research in ARDS, pandemic influenza, H1N1, sepsis, and COVID-19 in mechanically ventilated patients, designing and leading the four national epidemiological studies on the mentioned subjects. Authors the Andromeda study about resuscitation in septic shock, apart from studies of organizational issues and human resources in Latin America, American ICUs. She was president of the Sociedad Argentina de Terapia Incentiva between 2009 and 2010, and member of the board of the World Federation of Intensive and Critical Care between 2016 and 2020. Professor Estan Soro, the floor is yours. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation and also for the presentation. So when we think about health outcomes, we tend to think that these are questions of interactions between medical care and personal behavior. However, this um, has been, have been considered downstream determinants of health. And these are shaped by the upstream determinants, so they have been called which are non-medical, and these are uh, related to the living and working condition of people and characteristics like race, ethnicity, geography, gender, sexual orientation, and others that affect eh, health outcomes, but also mm, even uh, more upstream determinants like uh, socioeconomic status, conditions like income, education, especially occupational status and wealth, all influence health outcomes. So what are health inequities? Well, these are differences, differences in health outcomes and in their determinants between segments of the population. And difference, these differences are systematic, avoidable, and unfair. And these are, for example, differences in socioeconomic status, in demographics, or geography. And these differences are unfair because First, they are avoidable, and second, they usually affect groups that are already at a disadvantage. There is clearly a socioeconomic gradient of health, because well, we all know from our practice uh, there is a direct correlation between social advantage and health. Less advantaged groups, poorest people, experience disproportionately higher burden of poor health. And have these inequities been described in the management of critical ill patients? Yes, 
I would say that the icon study is the more characteristic of all these descriptions. More than 10,000 uh, critical care patients all, all over the world. And what they did, the, the researchers, they analyzed mortality according to the gross national income, comparing uh, mortality in the ICU of high income uh, countries to upper middle income countries and low and lower middle income countries. And having this as a reference, we uh, can observe that upper middle income countries and low and lower have increased, increased mortality increased mortality. And these differences even can widen when we take into account patient characteristics or even hospital characteristics. So there's here a big difference here. And what about the management of sepsis? Have these inequities been described? Yes, well, when you look at the, at the map of the distribution of sepsis, the incidence of sepsis, we see the darkest um, areas are those with higher incidence and mortality. And when we compare this, this is exact, exact uh, reverse, a mirror image of the gross national income per capita of this uh, uh, of these regions. You see, the darkest incidence, no, the higher incidence of sepsis is. Uh, coincides with a lower GDP per capita. The surveillance sepsis campaign has stated uh, that sepsis and septic shock are medical emergencies, and they recommend that treatment and resuscitation should begin immediately, and especially time to antibiotics, because ideally within one hour of recondition in all those uh, situations in which there is a high possibility of sepsis, because this has been, this, this rapid administration has been linked to better outcomes. So what are the barriers to implementing this diagnosis and rapid initiation of sepsis uh, in sepsis and septic shock? In the countries we are discussing, low and income countries, you know, regions that, as we've seen, have profound health deficiencies and inequities. I like always to discuss this in, in the framework of this um, three phases of delay. This was, uh, this was developed for uh, addressing maternal mortality, which was very high. And it, tends, it takes into account the delay to seek treatment, the delay to arrive to um, a healthcare, healthcare facility, and also the delay to receive the adequate treatment. And this, as I told you, that had been developed for maternal mortality, was also taken by WHO to be um, considered for emergency health. And these are the three delays I've been mentioned. The first delay into deciding to seek care. This is the first delay. And this is very much connected to socioeconomic and cultural characteristics, especially education. The perception of a, 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 an alteration in, in health is connected to education, as we'll see. The second delay, identifying and reaching a health facility has to do with accessibility of hospitals, and these are connected with uh, roads, transportation, availability of ambulances. The first, uh, or the third delay, it is received to adequate and appropriate treatment, and this is connected to the quality of care. So with institutions, with costs, with uh, availability of human resources, but also of supplies. And also, this is connected to processes of care. In, in today, we are referring specifically to uh, use or not the surviving sepsis bundle. 
Well, we have studied this in, in Argentina, in this study of patients with sepsis, and um, this was a prospective cohort study. And here we measured socioeconomic uh, status indirectly. Uh, why? Because, well, in Latin America and in many, in, in many low- and middle-income countries, there's a big, big uh, fragmentation of the health system based mainly in financing issues. So, in a way, for unemployed or employed um, without social security patients are assisted in public hospitals and the salaried working population of the rich with private insurance are assisted in private hospitals. So what happened with our patients uh, with, from the such sepsis study? More than 800 patients, half in public hospitals and half in, in private. And when we looked at the persistent variables of this population, we see that public, those from public hospitals, the red ones, were significantly younger, no gender difference, body, less body mass index, and were much more frequently unemployed or had illegal jobs. Um, these patients also have five years less of education compared to those of private hospitals, had more comorbidities according to Charles' score, even being younger, as I said. But when we asked them about their previous health state, their previously being admitted to, to the hospital with sepsis, how was your health? They, there were no differences between these two types of, of patients. And we know that there was a difference because patients from public hospitals had more comorbidities, but they didn't recall them in a way. Um, we didn't find differences in distance to the hospitals, but we found that patients from public hospitals have been previously evaluated and sent home much more frequently than those in private hospitals. The duration of symptoms um, before being admitted to the ICU with sepsis or septic shock was 48 hours for patients uh, from public hospitals and 24 from those from private hospitals. A big, big, big difference that we think that can be ascribed to a difference in perception of health from, from the patient themselves. This is the first delay, you know, uh, the decision to seek care. And this is, um, we know that these patients have were have the distortion of their self-perception. And this is clearly related to education in different, in different diseases This has been uh, systematically uh, shown. The more years of education, the higher the perception of disease uh, and of alteration or the deterioration of disease. But also there was a lack of awareness, awareness of the system. Remember what I told you, these patients were, had been sent home hmm, before being finally admitted. So when we um, looked at how mm, were these patients at ICU admission, most of them were in septic shock. Mm, they arrived lately, you know, as, was, as was shown or was commented in the previous presentation, and nearly half of them, and this is more, of course, the more deadly um, category of sepsis. And uh, when we look at them, of course, patients from public hospital were more acutely ill, as we see, and, but the time to the first dose of antibiotics was similar between these two populations. And when we look at the final outcome, mortality, 47% mortality patients from public hospitals versus 30%. So this is a striking difference in health outcomes, which is reflecting probably uh, not, not, in, in, in not, not, not for all variables, but there is clearly some difference in socioeconomic status between those two populations that uh, affects this difference. 
And this has been shown also in other emerging countries. It's a study from Brazil. They here measure mortality and in different points in which they, um, they uh, established some, established some um, interventional educations. And look, they were able to decrease mortality in the whole population, but patients in private hospitals started with lower mortality and were able to decrease 20% after educational activities, while patients in public hospitals look at the high, very, very high mortality, which decreased not so much. This is the... This is the Brazilian study, uh, the spread study, and this is ours in Argentina. You know, we are neighbors in Latin America. And what we see here in both of them, that uh, these are determinants of mortality. Of course, there are some determinants that have to do with the acuteness of disease, sub three here, so far here. But in, in, spread, in the spread study, resource availability, that is to say, connected with a third delay in receiving treatment or healthcare-associated infection, and also the compliance with bundles, which was a protective, uh, a, a protective factor. Well, all these um, played a role here. In our case, the periodization of symptoms, which we which we saw, or to, which we analyzed, that was connected with education, uh, and also infection caused by highly resistant microorganisms. This is a problem uh, of public uh, hospitals, usually. In other lower middle income countries, like in China, we can see similar uh, results. More than 2,000 patients with sepsis. Look at this. Most of them with septic shock, right? Late. And the predictors are the usual ones, but they found uh, that there's, prob there's probably a, a problem of, of accessibility here, because in China, only 1.1% of, of the total beds are ICU beds versus 20% in high-income countries. So here's a problem of accessibility. Again, the third delay in treatment, and receiving appropriate treatment. Probably these patients have to wait outside the ICU. And there was a higher mortality in some regions, so they wondered if there were probably differences in management. In Turkey, again, in sepsis, they had Look again, most patients arrived at septic shock with septic shock with a very high mortality and the usual determinants, but they also found in our, the nurse to patient ratio was related independently to mortality. Again, something related to the system. And in private hospitals, they had less severely ill patients. This is a very recent meta-analysis eh, in which it is shown clearly that socioeconomic status is quite related to outcomes in critical care. So, what about the solutions? This, this is really complex because um, mo most of the solutions lie in the governments to correct the, the structural determinants of health. Some investigators had said that low socioeconomic status is a moral imperative that has to be corrected. But WHO has strongly recommended different measures, all directed to increase awareness of sepsis in the general public and also in the healthcare workers by public campaigns, by educational activities, safety patient projects, and advocacy. Highlighting this, this is very important, highlighting that sepsis is a preventable but time sensitive disease. We have to hurry to treat these, these, these patients. And also, they have. Um, they have recommended to foster activities in the World Sepsis Day. The introduction of the term sepsis as a comprehensive concept uh, is important too, 
this for populations, for patients, family, and also for the healthcare workers. And I think that the COVID uh, made a lot for this. No, the patients and the population had the idea uh, that uh, COVID was a type of sepsis too. And finally, the ICU, the development of local quality improvement programs to adopt the bundles with a sepsis campaign is important because these uh, bundles, the fulfillment of these bundles are associated with decreased mortality. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Sansaro, for this nice presentation. So it was really interesting to see that the country with the lowest GDP per capita mm -hmm. had the highest burden of some, had the highest burden of sepsis. And um, what I'm, um, my question is whether, so because we know these countries are not very well industrialized. Mm -hmm. Do you think that an increase of in tax collection could help in the management of sepsis? Tax collection, you said? Tax collection, from, yeah, from the government, because... Of course. Yes, yes. Of course, because as I told you at the, with the final uh, slide, um, it has been uh, really, um, it is taken into account that the solutions come this way, this decreasing or, or that's to say, um, trying to decrease um, poverty and increasing sanitary conditions. You see, that's more important than the downstream determinants because we think, we that work in the ICU tend to think, well, the solution is here, it's in the ICU, but no, it is there. As has been shown in the previous presentation and here, it is all about things that, well, are more, I know, that are not medical, no, that has to be, has to do, or, have to do with the wealth of the population, like current air, current water, or safe water, and you know, and and programs for the whole population, but or nutrition, all those big determinants of health will, in the end, also help with the sepsis problem, because what I what I've shown is for sepsis, but before that, um, it's the same for all critical care diseases that countries with less or with lower GND, GNI had lower, had worse results, but had worse results in sepsis and clinical care in all, all, all the determinants of, of, of health. So I know the solutions are, I would say, integral. Okay, okay, very good. So we need definitely, so um, higher investment in LMICs sure. uh, to, tackle, to tackle sepsis. I know that in Africa, back in 2020, 2020 uh, 2010, uh, the African Union wanted to increase, uh, how can I say, um, the percentage of allocation of GDP towards um, healthcare to 15%. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, only two countries reached that. So, uh, oh, and, uh, and we, after COVID, we, yeah, we even realized that uh, um, 21 countries in Africa were spending less than what they were spending earlier before so before before covid so my question yeah. is do you know what is the exact um how can i say percentage of gdp expenses in brazil in brazil or argentina in latin america sorry in, in I, I couldn't understand well which is the the so, investment the percentage yeah. of of of, of the budget based, yeah of budget based on gdp is it 15%? Well, it is in Argentina, it's something like yes. 10%, 10%. But 
But the problem is it seems to be a good number, but we have to think that the whole GDP for low and middle-income countries is lower. So I would say that the cake is smaller no, than in, in these countries. So the 10% seems to be a good number, but really in, in absolute terms, compared to other countries, it's not so much. And there's also the, the feeling um, that they are not very good or very well invested, you see, because the fragmentation of the system to which I have referred makes that many, there's a lot of, of, of uh, money that is spent twice in the same problems, you see. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's a problem of the number, of the call, of the amount of money, and the problem of how is it directed uh, to the goals. I see. I can see so many similarities between <laughs> between Africa and Senegal. What's happening in uh, in Argentina? Because someone from in the African Union, when people wanted to raise the percentage to fifteen percent expenditure based on GDP, was saying mm -hmm. that fifteen percent of an elephant is not fifteen percent of a chicken. So I think so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's what you were saying here. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Good comparison. Great. I'll use that. Yeah, <laughs> because yes. I think we also that, speak about cakes. You know, the cake is exactly, larger yeah. or smaller, but I like that. Yeah. Yes, that was very shocking, but at least you never forget that. So, uh, mm -hmm. uh, all right, Professor Estancero. So, uh, thank you again for this uh, nice presentation, and we'll now move to our next speaker, who is Dr. Francois Ventura. Uh, he will talk about the current research on sepsis biomarkers and early diagnosis. Dr. Francois Ventura is a specialist in anesthesiology, intensive care medicine, and emergency medicine. He has been working at the University Hospital of Geneva since 1999 and has held successive positions as assistant physician, resident, associate physician, and consultant physician in the Department of Anesthesiology and in the adult intensive care unit. He has also gained extensive clinical experience working independently in private clinics. During the first COVID wave in March 2020, he studied the daily dosage of, dosage of, the, of the pancreatic stone protein PSP in critically ill patients hospitalized in the adult intensive care unit of the University Hospital of Geneva. Since then, he has published articles on biomarkers of sepsis and PSP. Dr. Vantra collaborates also part-time with a medtech company specialized in nanofluidic, new and classical biomarkers uh, analysis. Dr. Ventura, please give us your perspective on the, on the topic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for this very kind introduction. And it is a very a real honor to, to be part of this session uh, tonight because this is 20, uh, 10 o'clock p.m. in Switzerland uh, tonight. Um, just maybe to, to answer my presentation, Switzerland is a very, very rich country and our elephant is big, but I hope the answer I'm going to present you tonight is not so expensive. I'm sure it is not so expensive. So, well, as you told before, I have a small conflict of interest because I'm working by a Swiss medtech company, uh, which develop a new kind of point of care with biosensor with a nanofluidic platform to test quite all biomarker you want, like CRP, ferritin, D-dimer, and pancreatic stone protein. Uh, sepsis diagnosis. Just remember, sepsis is a combination of mil multiple things. First of all, you need to have an infection plus an inflammation and plus an organ dysfunction. 
But what is important, so how are we going to do the diagnosis of infection? The diagnosis of infection is based only on clinical evaluation, as said by the last surviving sepsis campaign guidelines published in October 2021. And this is the best practice statement. There is no biomarker recommended for the diagnosis of infection. And for the inflammation, it is quite the same. This is only clinical score or clinical evaluation and no biomarker is recommended for inflammation. And for organ dysfunction, once again, this is based on clinical score, and there is no biomarker recommended. Lactate is not recommended, PCT is not recommended. So biomarker, so why do we need biomarker? Um, well, first, because as I told you now, classical biomarker for infection like PCT, inflammation, CRP, and organ dysfunction like lactate are not recommended in 2023. And as I told you, the diagnosis is based only on clinical evaluation, but unfortunately, the clinical evaluation score have a bad specificity. And another reason to use biomarker is that clinicians in my country, in Switzerland, are using more biomarker, quite 100% of my colleagues, than clinical score, less than 50% of my colleagues. So um, what will be the the utility of a biomarker. A biomarker must be useful for screening. It means to detect sepsis even before symptoms. This is early pre-symptomatic diagnosis by screening. Another utility is diagnostic to quickly rule in or rule out sepsis and infection at time of clinical suspicion to monitor the treatment efficacy, for example, or for the de-escalation of antibiotics. To for another reason, but I think it is not very useful in daily clinical practice for risk stratification to predict evolution and to surrogate endpoint. It means to predict outcome and mortality. But once again, I think it is not so useful in daily practice. As I told you before, for the diagnosis of sepsis, you need diagnostic of infection, inflammation, and organ dysfunction. And maybe you have to, to find the biomarker for that four points. And to use this biomarker in these five different settings. So maybe it could, we could have 20 biomarkers. And so what do you think? Do you think we are going to find one biomarker fit all for all the 20 possibilities or 20 different biomarkers? Well, I'm going to maybe to, to, to give some answer at the end of my presentation. Um, I think it is really important to define exactly what is early. Early means before symptoms. So uh, I think we need to find biomarker to detect sepsis even before uh, clinical suspicion. It means it will be, of course, only for patients already hospitalized, but you know there is a high level, a high incidence of nosocomial infection and sepsis. And for this, we need a biomarker with a very good sensibility and a very good positive predictive value. And we have to compare early with quick. Quick diagnosis is mean at time of clinical suspicion, you have already a suspicion, you have to, to do a test very quickly, less than one hour, to, to decide to give or not to give antibiotic. And for this purpose, the biomarker must have a very good specificity and a good negative predictive value. So this is different um, specificity and sensitivity between early screening biomarker and quick diagnosis biomarker. Current research. 
in, in a study published in 2020, um, they um, say there is about 258 sepsis biomarker in different studies published in the literature. There is top uh, eight biomarker in the top ranking, like classical biomarker, like leukocytes, CAP, PCT, lactate. There is some new biomarker, and there is 250 other biomarkers in different studies. But it is very important to say that nine biomarkers are better than CRP and PCT. And while just to, to show you, there is a, a huge literature about biomarker, for example, um, about 12,000 um, studies published since nine, uh, 1972. And for example, since the beginning of this year, there is already um, something like 300 studies on biomarker of sepsis. So it will be, of course, very difficult for me to summarize all this biomarker. But I am going to go very shortly uh, about this, the four different kinds of biomarker we need for infection, inflammation, organ dysfunction, and sepsis. For infection, as I told you before, there is no re uh, biomarker recommended in 2023. PCT is not recommended for the diagnosis of infection. There is some new biomarker like presepsin, more specific program negative bacteria. There is some neutrophile to lymphocyte ratio, monocyte dispersion with uh, to detect infection, but there is no difference between bacteria and viruses. Um, there is some new technique, technology with metagenomics and transcriptomics, but the next speaker are going to speak about that topic, so I'm not going deeper in that topic. For, inf uh, for infection, not to detect it early, but at time of suspicion, there is new technology now to identify uh, the bacteria in five hours, much more uh, faster than uh, blood culture. And there is new technology as well to, um, to find the antibiogram in five to six hours. But this is not my topic for early diagnosis of sepsis. Biomarker of inflammation, of course, CRP is a classical biomarker, but I think it is not useful to have new biomarker of inflammation because this is totally unspecific. Um, because as you know, there is inflammation in case of trauma, surgery, traumosis, and, and so on, and not only for infection. And for me, this is the same, uh, the same for organ dysfunction. I, I think we don't need a biomarker specific or organ dysfunction because organ dysfunction is not specific of infection on sepsis. There is some, for example, in this new biomarker, um, pro-adremedulin, but it is not specific of sepsis, it is specific of organ dysfunction. I am not sure it is really, really useful for uh, sepsis diagnosis and early sepsis diagnosis. Well, there is a many, many, many different biomarkers of sepsis, many, many different new studies. There is, for example, acute face protein biomarker, damage-associated molecule patterns, um, biomarker, fluid face pattern recognition, cytokine, uh, chemokine, endothelial cells, and so on, gut primary T, gen, membrane receptor, one peptide, so on, so on, and so on. So there is many, many, many biomarkers. But the most important thing is to find um, a, a very um, powerful biomarker, for sure, but we have to identify um, the criteria and the ideal criteria for an early sepsis biomarker. And there is a study published in 20, uh, 2010 saying that an ideal biomarker must have some criteria. This is the assured criteria. First of all, the, um, the biomarker must be, must be affordable, 10 to $20, no more. 
um, for for rich country, but even for uh, low, uh, high, uh, middle um, income country as well. The biomarker must be sensitive. It means with a very good positive predictive value, and for the early pre-symptomatic diagnosis of nosocomial sepsis, it must be specific. It means with a very good negative predictive value to quickly decide to give or not to give antibiotics to rule in or rule out infection at time of clinical suspicion. Uh, the biomarker must be user-friendly. I think POCT must be the best answer. Rapid, in less than one hour, for sure. Um, Equipment-free, I think it will be difficult, maybe with a POC, very easy POC, or with a lateral flow test. And we published uh, last month um, a table with a checklist uh, to tick all the box uh, to have the ideal criteria for biomarker of sepsis. Even you are going to find a very interesting biomarker. If this biomarker is very expensive, complex, and takes more than one hour, it is not useful. So I'm going to give you just an example uh, about PSP and CRP. What is PSP? PSP is pancreatic stone protein. Uh, it is a damage-associated molecular patterns. There is more than 600 peer-reviewed studies on PSP, 46 uh, on PSP and sepsis, one prospective metacentric study, one meta-analysis. PSP is certified in Europe, in Australia, I hope, or maybe soon in the US. And the test is done in seven minutes with new uh, nanofluidic biosensor. And there will be a talk about uh, biosensor uh, in that session. Um, what um, we have seen with PSP, uh, for the early diagnosis of sepsis, it means before sepsis, before uh, symptoms, um, PSP rise already five to three days before sepsis. And it is not really the case with PCT and CRP. So sepsis, in my knowledge, is the only biomarker able to detect sepsis even before symptoms for the early diagnosis. And for the quick uh, diagnosis, it means a time of suspicion of sepsis, when we combine all biomarkers and different studies, we can say that the combination, I think, is really important to use maybe not only one biomarker, but to combine biomarker, the combination of PSP and CRP results in less than 10 minutes as the best accuracy with an higher end of a, uh, under the curve of 90%, sensibility of 82%, specificity 85%, positive predictive value 91%. And this is the best combination of biomarker. So for my conclusion, yeah, if I try to, to fill the table I present to you before, and there is some um, box I think is not really, really useful to, to, to fill because it is not really important in clinical practice. I think that for infection, for screening, PSP is the best biomarker. For diagnosis, a combination of PSP and CRP are the best combination. For the monitoring, and this is totally uh, agree by the, by the last surviving sepsis campaign, like PCT is the best biomarker for um, de-escalation of antibiotics. And for uh, um, sepsis, once again, PSP, PSP and CRP combination are the best biomarker for early and quick uh, diagnosis. Well, my conclusion is that there is no biomarker currently in the international guidelines for sepsis diagnosis. Future research should specify what type of the 20 use of biomarker is intended for the, the new biomarker. 
We have to apply a standardized protocol to answer a clinical question when you are going to do studies on new biomarker. Do not compare the new biomarker with the current non-valid biomarker. I think this is really important. We don't have to compare CRP with a new biomarker because CRP is not only a biomarker of inflammation and is not recommended nowadays. A future biomarker of sepsis will have to be assured and certified. Oops, sorry. And the combination of biomarker on a clinical pretest probability score will probably be the current missing tool. And maybe integrated into a machine learning system. And another speaker in that session is going to speak about uh, learning machine system for the diagnosis of sepsis. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ventra, for your, for your insights. So um, perhaps quickly, um, a couple of seconds. So uh, someone is asking whether the pre-symptomatic biomarkers should be measured uh, for how long before uh, symptom onset? Yeah. Well, um, as you know, there is a high level, high incidence of nosocomial infection in the ICU. This is something like 50%. In the world, this is something like 10%. And there is patient at high risk of uh, nosocomial infection, longer stay, catheter, and so on. And for that patient, we would like to propose to test PSP every day, for example, at the biomarker every day. And even five to three days before uh, symptoms, there is a, a rise of uh, the biomarker. And based on that result, we have to decide to, to do tests maybe earlier and to start antibiotics earlier. So we propose to use that test to every patient, to all patients at high risk of uh, nosocomial infection to detect sepsis even earlier and even before symptoms. So it means every day, every day for patients with a, quite a long stay. For patients who are going to stay only two days, I think it's not useful. But for patients with a long stay with higher risk of nosocomial infection, it is really important to test it every day. This is what we propose. And the price Excellent. of the test is the same as the price of, the, of the one day of antibiotics. So it's not so expensive. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. There, is, there are still a lot of questions, but I think we are running out, uh, out of time. So uh, we'll come back to the questions if, uh, if you have more time. Thank you very much again, Dr. Ventura. Thank you. So now we move to the next speaker. So um, uh, Dr. Miriam Huntley, uh, she will talk about uh, sequence, uh, sequencing useful to detect sepsis, a tour of metagenomics and transcriptomics for timely infection diagnosis. Dr. Miriam is, Huntley is a CTO and co-founder of Day Zero Diagnostics, a Boston-based genomic startup that was spun out of Harvard University and Massachusetts General Hospital. Day Zero Diagnostics is pioneering a new class of infectious disease diagnostics using whole genome sequencing and machine learning to develop a rapid and comprehensive diagnostic for bacterial infections. As CTO of the company, she leads the development of machine learning and computational biology methods for pathogen genomics data analysis. She has been honored at, as a TED Med Hive innovator and a MedTech Boston 40 under 40 healthcare innovator. Dr. Huntley earned her BS, uh, Bachelor of Science from MIT in Physics and her PhD in Applied Mathematics at Harvard University. Her doctoral work uncovered fundamental structures in the three-dimensional um, folded genome and has been covered widely in the public media by outlets such as NPR and Forbes. Dr. Huntley, the floor is yours. Great, thank you for that introduction. Um, so today I'm going to talk about whether or not sequencing can be useful in the detection of sepsis. 
Um, and just briefly, my disclosures, I'm an employee of and retain equity in day zero diagnostics. So to start, I want to ask the question of why should we use sequencing at all? Um, you know, why is this technology going to be useful for uh, detection of sepsis? And as many of you may know, um, sequencing is a technology that has emerged and gone through um, really rapid changes and improvements. So if we look at cost alone, the improvement in cost over the past five to 10 years have been uh, really remarkable with cost decreasing at a logarithmic scale. And not only that, if you look on the plot on the right, um, sequencing technologies themselves have also improved. So not just in cost, but also in speed and in accuracy and data capacity. So we're getting closer and closer to a place where sequencing is not just relevant for research applications, but really useful in diagnostic settings in the clinic. So sequencing and sepsis, you know, here's my kind of 30,000 foot overview of the major methods that I see being used today um, to, in kind of commercial settings or close to clinical settings. Um, and kind of the first split is whether or not you access the microbial genome itself or you're looking at the host response. And so um, kind of the, the first uh, split here is technologies that look at the human transcriptome. So use um, RNA expression in order to determine what's happening with the septic patient. Um, the other pathway of technology is those that assess the microbial genome itself. And there's really kind of two different uh, methodologies there. The first is using cell-free microbial DNA sequencing um, to assess any uh, microbial DNA that might be in the blood. Um, the alternative approach, that's the approach that our company takes, is uh, assessing the whole genome of bacterial cells that are intact within, um, within the blood. So I'll talk about each of these technologies in turn here. So to start with the human transcriptome, kind of the basic idea here is that in sepsis, there is a large host response that includes an abnormal immune response. And to some extent that can be captured um, by human transcriptome profiling by looking at RNA expression in the patient. Um, and this has been seen in a number of different studies um, where, for example, in a recent study last year with RNA, uh, with, with whole blood RNA-seq, um, genes that were, you know, kind of the study found there were genes that were upregulated in septic patients and downregulated, uh, upregulated in septic patients or downregulated in um, non-septic patients. And so, you know, this can be used to really diagnose sepsis to determine septic versus non-septic patients. And the genes that are tend to be upregulated in these septic patients are those that you kind of expect typically having to do with immune response. Um, and this technology of looking for differential gene expression can not only be used for determining septic versus non-septic, but also has been extended to predict other factors. So things like 30-day mortality or distinguishing infection between bacteria and viral. Um, so this has been kind of used in various settings. Um, and so once you've determined which genes can be differential for diagnosis, you can have a sequencing-based assay to perform that diagnostic. You could also have a more targeted assay that doesn't do sequencing, but um, has a kind of a small panel using a microarray or a digital probe-based detection. Um, and that's uh, what's shown here on the bottom right, where um, a, a study was looking at um, a particular company, Filmatics com uh, Technology, where they have uh, a small targeted panel, about 30 genes, um, uh, to, to determine mortality in septic patients. And you can kind of see there the rock curve comparing that to other uh, biomarkers um, uh, that, that were kind of available uh, in those patients. So broadly speaking, this is a good way to really kind of triage patients and figure out, um, you know, do they have sepsis in the first place and what kind of infection is it? Um, the downsides of this technology is it can't be used to determine the species of the infection. 
Um, and moreover, it can't be used to determine any AMR related to the infection. Um, so kind of determining kind of what specific antibiotic to treat with. So moving on down to the other pathway, the other approach is to directly sequence the bacterial genome or the microbial genome. Um, and this is not a new idea. It's certainly been around for ages. Um, you know, I pulled some papers from the 90s that have this beautiful, you know, 1990s looking graphic of a flow chart of expressing what that idea could be of how you could sequence microbial genomic DNA in order to do a diagnostic. Um, but, you know, it's been a long time from those ideas to actually seeing that in the clinic. And um, really, you know, there's been some challenges to that. One has been cost, but as we've seen, the cost has really been decreasing. You know, the other challenge is that really the amount of microbial DNA in these samples is just extraordinarily low. And so accessing it is really like accessing a needle in a haystack. So, for example, in blood, um, at uh, typical pathogen loads of 1 to 10 CFU per mil, there's really a billion times more human DNA than bacterial DNA in these samples, in the case of bacteremia. Um, and the human DNA comes from all sorts of sources, certainly whole blood cells comprise a large part of that, but RBCs and platelets and even cell-free DNA are really contributing to that large haystack surrounding this needle of a, of a, of a bacteria or a, of a pathogen. Um, so there's, you know, as I mentioned, there's two different approaches to try to sequence the bacterial genome in these samples. Um, and the first approach is to go with plasma to really focus on the cell-free DNA aspect. Um, so essentially cell-free microbial DNA sequencing in, um, in the case of bacteremia, what it does is it profiles any cell-free DNA that's in the plasma to directly detect the pathogens that are there. And the use of plasma rather than whole blood really diminishes the amount of human DNA um, relative to what you'd get if you looked at whole blood. Um, you know, so that's a, an advantage of using plasma. Um, of course, unfortunately, with, with plasma, while there is some signal, the signal to noise is not as great as you would get with cell-free microbial DNA sequencing with other bodily fluids. So something like CSF tends to have a much higher pathogen burden or higher number of pathogen reads than something like plasma. So the signal to noise can be challenging in these samples. Um, but overall, you know, this is a really good assay in that it's really pathogen agnostic, whatever DNA happens to be floating around cell-free DNA can be used um, for species identification. So it's very comprehensive in its coverage of species. Um, you know, kind of the downside is it can detect pathogens that may not be specific to blood. You know, that DNA could come from uh, microbes in the gut or in the mouth, or even from reagent contamination that's being used. Um, on the table on the bottom right, you can see a recent review um, showing a couple different uh, cell-free microbi microbial um, uh, DNA sequencing pipelines or, or assays that are being used. And for example, um, carious tests, you can see their reported sensitivity and specificity in septic patients with respect to blood culture. Um, so overall can be um, um, you know, really useful for species identification in cases of sepsis. Um, it does not provide whole genome coverage. The data that you tend to get here is snippets of DNA, really small amounts of the, of the microbial genome. And so um, something like AMR determination from these data is not feasible. So that brings us to the last approach, um, which is using intact bacterial cells for whole genome sequencing. So this is an approach where um, the genomes of intact bacterial cells present in whole blood cells are profiled directly. So in order to do that, in order to get the bacterial DNA from whole blood, that requires depleting the human DNA that's in these samples. As I mentioned, the amount of human DNA to bacterial DNA is about 1 billion to 1. Um, and kind of the old school approach to 
finding bacteria and blood um, might be kind of using a probe-based PCR approach. But, you know, that's kind of limited. You have a small number of PCR probes um, that you can use to really pull out um, the, the bacteria from this haystack of, of human DNA. So a depletion-based approach, the idea there is one removes the haystack of all the human DNA to agnostically capture whatever bacteria is left and sequence that. Um, so that's the approach that we take at day zero, um, where we've um, developed a technology that first performs human depletion of blood to agnostically enrich whatever bacteria is left. And then those genomes are then sequenced and processed with an analytical pipeline in order to determine the species of the infection and also the antimicrobial resistance, which is feasible if you can recover the full genome of the pathogen. Um, and just to give you a sense, of what that data looks like on our end. Um, these are studies that we do internally where we spike blood with very, very low um, concentrations of bacteria and single digit CFU per mil input concentrations. And our technology is able to recover the full genomes of the pathogens. Um, so even though we start out with a bacterial to human DNA ratio of one in a billion, we're still able to actually get the whole bacterial genome. Um, and what this enables is for us to use that genomic data in order to perform what we call genomic antibiotic susceptibility testing or determining AMR. Um, and that's done at, you know, from whole blood, we're able to accurately determine the antibiotic resistance of these, um, uh, of these pathogens using machine learning methods that take the genomic data as input. Um, you know, finally, I'd also like to mention that it's important to note that sequencing you know, it's not only useful for detecting sepsis, but it can be used to unlock really a wealth of data riches downstream. And, you know, every time a pathogen genome is sequenced, it's a very deep data point that can be used for other analyses. And one very obvious application is the detection of hospital-acquired infections, or HAIs. You know, HAIs are a huge problem, not only in the U.S., but globally. Um, an estimated 90% up to 30% of bacteremia episodes are considered to be nosocomial. So HAIs really do play an important role in sepsis. Um, but today, the methods available to hospital infection control teams to detect uh, events of transmission are really limited to kind of crude data like epidemiological flags, lab reports, or even pulse field. Um, so, you know, I think it's widely recognized today that sequencing is the gold standard for transmission determination, but I mean, that's not something that's performed regularly in hospitals to be used for hospital infection control. So, you know, if we are already doing sequencing of the pathogen for diagnostic purposes, almost as a freebie add-on, you can also then track other downstream, tack on other downstream analyses that include large-scale hospital epidemiology, or use the sequencing data to measure relatedness of various pathogens across the hospital to detect when there actually is a transmission event. Um, and so this would be a new capacity that this kind of diagnostic brings forth that we're really excited about at day zero. Um, so I'll just end with that, you know, kind of from my perspective, is sequencing useful to detect sepsis? I would say absolutely. And, and um, in my opinion, it's not really about an if when this gets used regularly, but, uh, but rather when, and happy to take any questions. Very good. Thank you very much, Dr. Huntley, uh, for your for your insight. I think so. Um, innovation is key in tackling uh, sepsis. Dr. Huntley, please tell me. So, is your company uh, proposing a full workflow uh, to do this sequencing? I mean, a workflow starting from sample preparation to sample analysis. Yeah, that's a great question. So, in the case of sepsis. 
obviously time matters. And so it's really important that you get to the fastest way of getting to an answer for a patient. And so if you have something like a send out service or kind of requires multiple pieces, um, it's very difficult to imagine that being a fast turnaround time diagnostic. So our approach has been, yes, a, a kind of full end to end diagnostic where a sample goes in and answer comes out. And that kind of includes not just the sequencing, but also the computational analytic portion, which you know is a significant part of the analysis of genomic sequences. Very good. Thank you very much. So I wish we had more time to go um, to discuss more, but for time's sake, unfortunately, we have to move to the uh, next speaker. Thank you very much again for this uh, nice presentation. So our next speaker is Dr. Tanto Liwong, uh, who will talk about sepsis diagnosis, a paradigm shifts toward uh, biosensing. So this uh, talk is pre-recorded, so there will be no, no question. Dr. Tanto Liwong is an associate professor and consultant emergency physician currently working at the Department of Emergency Medicine, Hospital Counselor, uh, Tuanko Mohriz University um, in Malaysia. He is the current president and founder of the Malaysian Sepsis Alliance and steering committee for Asia Pacific Sepsis Alliance International. He is a clinical researcher with hundreds of publications and popular writings, five books, numerous, numerous scholarships and awards, and funding totaling over a million ringgit Malaysia. She's also a peer reviewer for various high impact journals and is deeply involved in research and his special interest is in sepsis, infection, emergency critical care, translational research and point of care testing. I think now we can uh, move to the presentation. Hi everyone. Thank you for World Sepsis Congress Committee for this invitation and the opportunity to deliver to you a topic on sepsis diagnosis, a paradigm shift towards biosensing. I am Tan Leung. I come from University Kebangsaan Malaysia, and I'm the current president of Malaysia Sepsis Alliance. First of all, I would like to declare the conflict of interest for me that I'm currently conducting a clinical trials for sepsis DOT, sponsored by Biogene Technologies in Heights. However, the contents for this talk has not direct or indirect influence nor the financial sponsor from the company. First of all, I would like to share with you again the traditional way of laboratory techniques to sepsis diagnosis. So we basically we detect two types of molecules, which is the PAM molecules, the pathogen-associated molecular pattern molecules, or the DEMS molecule, which is the damage-associated molecular patterns molecules. So there's three tests to detect PAM, which is the cultures, the RT-PCR, and the multitask. However, for the ELISA, it is to detect the DEMS. So these traditional laboratory techniques, usually they are time-consuming, they require expensive analyzer, and the machine is bulky, which is lack of portability. There is lack of sensitive or precise point of care, and the diagnosis usually based on doctor's guesstimate. So all these factors usually delay the sepsis diagnosis. Before I start to talk about the biosensor, let me revise again with you some of the importance and significance sepsis biomarkers, which is really useful to detect sepsis. I divide into three categories because I would like to compare their performance to the gold standard PCT or CRP. For, to detect sepsis. So the first group is the pancreatic stone protein, the SCD22, 
and the interleukin 10. These three biomarkers have equal or lower performance compared with PCG, especially in ED patients, surgical patients, and those patients with bacteremia and cysts. I also would like to highlight three biomarkers which have better performance compared with PCT and CRP, which is the SCD163, the secretory phospholipase A2 group 2As, and the CD64. All these three markers uh, give a very good uh, detection uh, performance compared with PCT and CRP, especially in ICU and ED patients. And there's a list of uh, DAMS molecules detection that has conflicting findings. So there's four here I would like to highlight, which is interleukin 6. One of the studies saying that it's better, and the other one is not better than PCT. For SCD25, for ED patient, the diagnostic value is equal to PCT. However, for the patient in ICU, it has better diagnostic value. For strength, there's two studies contradict each other, which is one claim that there's better than PCT, the other one claim that it's uh, not better than PCT or CRP among the ICU patients. Last but not least, the perceptions found that these two studies have better PCT performance compared with two not better than PCT in ED and ICU patients. One study for neonates saying that uh, is better than PCT. So, what is biosensor? A biosensor is analytical device that converts chemicals or biochemicals information into a useful analytic signals. There's two basic elements, which is consists of a bioreceptors, a selective and specific biological recognition elements, which is the enzyme, DNA or antibody and a transducer which convert the receptor analyzed interaction into an analyticals uh, such as the opticals or electrical signals whose intensity is directly or inversely proportionate to the analyte concentrations. So you can see from here these figures that there is a liquid content of analytes which is can be serum, can be a, a patient sample, can be blood, can be sputum that apply to this screen print electrode that later on act as a transducer and convert into a signal, which will give you a result on whether it can pick up sepsis or not, or the bacterial DNA or bacterial uh, enzyme. So what is the advantage for biosensor? Definitely, there is a lot of advantage. There is, it's low cost, it's portabilities, it's low response time, some of them can give the result within minutes. Ease of use and suitability for the point of care, Me meaning that you can bring the machines to the patient bedside to directly get the, uh, get the result. Yeah? So there is five types of biosensors that I would like to share with you. So the first type is electrochemicals biosensor. It is a device that transforms electrical chemicals information into analytical signals. This is the commonest uh, electrochemical sensor. The second category is the optical biosensor. It is a compact analytical device containing a biorecognition sensing elements integrated with an optical transducer system. The third one is led on chip and microfluidics device. They are miniature device 
that facilitate the integrations of multiple functionality of one or more sensing platform on a single platform using low volume sample. And the fourth one is immunosensor, which is an analytical device that using antibody as recognition elements on account of their high affinity towards target molecules with a low dissociation constant in the nanomolar range. And lastly, the new biosensor, which is the ectomal based sensor, a new class of biosensor where the biological recognition element is the DNA or RNA ectomals. This type of sensor is quite stable and can store for a long time because it's DNA based or RNA based. So now I would like to share with you some of the device which was invented based on electrochemical biosensor concept. Guillem et al. have created a biosensor using the CRP as the target molecules to detect substances. The sample of analytics just required 50 microliths that can produce some signal and give you the result. Bonaini had also created a biosensor which using the DNA of the E. coli or Streptococcus, which is a PAM molecules, a CRISPR-Cas12A based biosensor to detect E. coli or Streptococcus detection. The third one is the enzyme-based biosensor. Nick Mansour et al. created a tri-enzyme system consists of choline kinase and choline oxidase phosphoridase borosite to detect secretory phospholipase A2 group 2A. So this can detect bacterial sepsis in less than 10 minutes range. Next, I would like to share with you some of the device that using the optical biosensors. The first one, one and all have created antibody optical biosensor, which using fiber optics and surface plasmon resonance for the specific detection of CRP. Chai et al. also created an antibody optical biosensor, which using a sandwich assay to detect PCT detections. SoundID also created an antibody optical biosensor to detect CRP using the white light reluctance spectroscopy. Lastly, I would like to share with you a few examples of after sensor. Wang et al. have created ribonucleus H-assisted DNA recycling signal amplification strategy to detect CRP in sepsis patient. Lastly, Dan et al. have created a DNA biosensor, which is sepsis dot, which is a DNA ectomal sensor which can capture the secretory phospholipase A to group 2As in human whole blood and saliva to produce a small electrical currents as output to detect sepsis. Thank you for the opportunity for me to share with you this uh, meaningful lecture. And biosensing definitely is a very important uh, device in our next future especially in this current fast-paced and overcrowded hospital. Biosensing definitely will play a big role for immediate sepsis detection so that it can assist in the speedy sepsis management. Thank you. This is my contact and this is my email and this is our website. Thank you. And I pass back to the host. Thank you very much, Dr. Lin Wong. We appreciate that you recorded this presentation and shared it with the audience. Um, now we'll move to our final speaker, who is Dr. Rishi Kamaleswaran. Uh, he will talk about an interpretable machine learning model for accurate prediction of sepsis in the ICU. Dr. Rishi is an associate professor 
at Emory University, Department of Biomedical Informatics with secondary appointments in pediatrics and emergency medicine. His research focuses on applying temporal machine learning and even stream processing methods to real-time data streams. Much of the, his recent work involves analyzing trends in data that predict the onset of deterioration in critically ill patients, such as single or multiple organ dysfunction, sepsis, respiratory and neurological dysfunction. His goal uh, for his research program is based on developing intelligent systems that can be used to cure disease and advance clinical understanding of critical and acute illness. He has been funded by the NIH and other industry and private foundations to advance research in those fields. Dr. Ritchie, please, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the, the kind introduction. So I'd like to present today on an interpretable machine learning model for accurately uh, predicting sepsis in the ICU. I'd like to start by continuing on with the discussions we had earlier. Uh, I think uh, it's uh, well understood that the promise of precision medicine is a profound uh, um, one and, and something that everyone is looking forward to, to address some of the major issues that we have within the area of sepsis predictions. Traditionally uh, and historically, medicine has been driven by population-based paradigms uh, that have been applied to individual cases. You have um, uh, a cohort of very uh, diseased uh, uh, individuals and um, paradigms are developed on those cohorts and apply to individual patients to uh, drive their clinical care. However, there's been a surmounting evidence that suggests that one size may not fit all and that individualized interventions are uh, an important way of improving patient outcomes. Precision medicine is a means by which patients can receive individualized care based on their distinct phenotypic and biological presentations. There's been a number of successes that have been achieved, but largely restricted to molecular and genetic-based interventions in oncology. Other areas, including those uh, such as sepsis and sepsis prediction, have been hampered by the complexity and heterogeneity that exists within the patient cohort, which prevents the, the um, development of these robust uh, predictive and diagnostic tools. I'd like to focus my, my talk today on, on those machine learning algorithms and how AI is advancing uh, some of these questions or some of the answers to these questions within critical care. Data-driven techniques allow us to capture very highly complex interactions that occur within the data that are often missed by the human eye. There's been a number of techniques that exist, uh, including some of which that are called predictive uh, and others that are called unsupervised clustering to generate uh, nuanced uh, approximations of um, uh, clinical uh, phenotypes that uh, are, are uh, appear similarly, but have different distinct profiles. The use of appropriate uh, AI machine learning methodology can enrich patient outcomes um, and may be an important part of facilitating utilization of technology adaptation. I'd like to start with this illustration that shows you how a patient uh, migrates from a healthy state to a state of distress. Uh, the distress illustrated in that red uh, bar suggests that uh, 
once a patient has uh, has reached that point, it's a point of no return. Uh, it's uh, it's imminent that uh, death follows. However, if uh, clinicians are able to identify patients who enter into that state of distress just as they uh, uh, pivot into that that region, uh, maybe they can arrest the the state of uh, of distress and uh, and and guide the patient back to a state of health. And now the promise of precision medicine is that we'll be able to do this even earlier while the patient is in a state of maybe not not quite healthy, but not quite distressed somewhere in the middle. We'll be able to see subtle signs that that point to uh, an imminent rise in their in their severity and may be able to intervene earlier, thereby preventing worsening and preventing this patient having uh, progressed to that state of distress. In the ICU, there's, uh, we're, we're surrounded by data. There's data that's being generated from all sorts of devices and monitors. And all this data, unfortunately, is, is underutilized in ways that, uh, that we would otherwise benefit from. Uh, in, in this illustration, you have the ECG monitor, the IV pump, the oxygen saturation monitor, the ventilator, all generating thousands of data points every second. And if you enumerate that data over a patient day, that's several millions of data points that are being captured. But in, in reality, we actually just store a handful of these vital signs onto our records, even if we do have electronic medical records. So a lot of uh, rich uh, phenotypic data is, is, is distilled uh, uh, down to just a handful of these um, state uh, uh, approximations. And I think that is a source of some of the challenges that we have uh, in understanding how sepsis progresses. So as a way to try to characterize this continuous data stream, we developed a tool that would allow uh, us to capture this data and analyze this data in real time. And we put this within an open source um, uh, machine learning pipeline for physiologic data and released it to the public. Um, and we, we demonstrated that this uh, has good utility in uh, identifying um, a, 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 a specific case, this one is looking at atrial fibrillation, but can uh, be uh, generalized to other modalities provided that this pipeline is utilized. In, uh, in, in real-world demonstrations of, of sepsis in children, we developed a machine learning algorithm that uh, was uh, uh, developed using continuous vital signs data that were collected from the bedside monitor at an interval of uh, one minute. Uh, every minute, you've got a heart rate, uh, SpO2, respiratory rate, and um, uh, blood pressures if they're available from the arterial line or, or from the cuff. Um, and this data, uh, along with temperature and, and a whole host of other vital signs, and this data was used to, to fit into machine learning algorithms to predict the risk of uh, developing sepsis. And here, what we show you is uh, a cohort of patients, of, of children, of about 493 to be precise, uh, in the pediatric ICU who were monitored, of which 20 developed uh, severe sepsis um, over that uh, six-month period. Um, so we um, we utilized the, the uh, data and fit that into two buckets. One was from an eight-hour uh, window uh, to a 24-hour window, and we fed uh, these these data points to the machine learning algorithm and uh, and sought to uh, um, investigate how 
temporal proximity to uh, time of infection or time of sepsis would actually uh, play out in the in the model performance. And so what we uh, show is that uh, we had an electronic sniffer that was running in the background that actually uh, alerted when uh, the pediatric uh, uh, sepsis uh, uh, um, definition was met. Uh, and just before that, we were uh, plotting probabilities and, and the times of alerts, and we showed that uh, vital sign changes were observed from these periods, and we're, we're actually able to identify these trends very early on uh, in, in this patient population as, as early as 24 hours. And in, in terms of our model predictions, we showed that with just simple logistic regression and a, a simple random forest model, we were sufficiently able to exploit those uh, changes within the vital signs to separate patients that actually ended up developing sepsis from those that, that did not, but fairly good um, sensitivity and specificity. We asked the question, well, what? how low can you go? What is the minimal amount of data you need to, to robustly predict sepsis from just continuous vital sign data? And we wanted to ask this because ultimately we wanted this algorithm to be interpretable, to be something that clinicians can use to aid decision support at the bedside. And what we showed in uh, some of the, the adult-based data is that with only um, heart rate, respiratory rate, uh, the systolic, diastolic blood pressures, SpO2, and temperature, uh, we could build a fairly robust model that was able to predict sepsis up to five hours before patients met sepsis 2 criteria. The disadvantage was that specificity was very low, therefore the, the overall uh, false positive uh, rate was higher. But as a triage tool, we thought this could be something that showed proof of concept. We then further developed a more robust and, and more sophisticated algorithm that utilized clinical data uh, across a larger cohort of patients in the adult ICUs and, and found that uh, these physiomarkers that will be characterized as uh, changes in vital signs were able to pick up traces of, of sepsis very early on, up to 24 hours prior to meeting the sepsis 3 criteria, and on average about 17.4 uh, hours before uh, that time point with fairly good uh, sensitivity, specificity, and, and AUC. I want to characterize some of the, the actual uh, interpretability components of this. We, could, we saw that as patients got closer to the time, to, to that uh, zero bar on the far right, uh, that represented them getting closer to the uh, onset of when they actually met sepsis 3 criteria. And we saw that as early as 21 hours before meeting that criteria, heart rate really was a prominent driver of uh, changes uh, in, in terms of variability that was indicative of onset uh, of, of, of systemic inflammation. And then somewhere in the middle, around uh, 14 hours, uh, it switches to respiratory rate, and respiratory rate drives some of those uh, modulations uh, as, as close as two to one hour before. Um, and then there are subtle changes in, in uh, mean arterial blood pressure and um, or sorry, uh, in, in, in what we call mean, written as NDP, but mean arterial blood pressure and systolic diastolic blood pressures. So we wanted to ask the question, well, this is great that you have a lot of this uh, intricate um, uh, relationship between the actual vital signs from a temporal basis, but causally, what does that tell us? And so we developed a very 
robust causal map uh, utilizing um, inferred causality, which we call, which is termed as Granger causality, uh, from these irregularly sampled time series. We developed these states, which we, which you can see over here. Um, uh, we characterize them as electrolyte imbalance, renal injury, sepsis, inflammation. And we wanted to see just how uh, the relationship between these, these edges 